Wow, good singing this morning, Wilshire. It's uh, good to be with you. Uh, sometimes these songs that Ethan leads us in, they just give me chills. And, and this last song that we sang, The Love of God, that whole last verse, I just got chills all the way through it. It's such an amazing, amazing, that's, that's just a good song overall. It's got a tune that makes me feel better about life. And the words are absolutely astonishing. So thank you for all that you do, Ethan, but thank you for leading us in that song. Uh, it's good to be back with you. Uh, Jeremy and I were both uh, unable to be here last week. I was called away for medical, and he was uh, elsewhere too. And so we are very grateful to Gary and all the others who stepped up and uh, were able to take over last week. Then the boiler blew, so that was online, and... Uh, Sorry about that, too. But, you know, Wilshire is flexible. We roll with the punches, and we keep serving God, and I'm grateful for that about this congregation. If you're visiting, uh, welcome. We're glad that you've chosen to be with us this morning, and, and we hope you'll stay through the service and, and uh, spend some time with us in our Bible classes as well. It's a, it's a good chance to get to know the people of this congregation, who are good people. Um. We've been preaching through the story of Jesus, best story there is, and uh, I've really enjoyed looking at the different aspects of who Jesus is, and today I want to talk about what Jesus is doing right now. Where is Jesus right now? And that's not a puzzling question to us if we read our Bibles. Because over and over and over again, if you ask, where's Jesus right now? The answer is he is seated at the right hand of God. It was absolutely fundamental to the faith of those very first Christians that Jesus has gone to be enthroned with God in heaven. And, and that meant several different things to them. And as is typical with these sermons, we don't have time to talk about every aspect of what that means that Jesus is seated at the right hand, but I want to talk about two or three items that I think are really significant, what that means when those early Christians said that, and what that means when you and I still say that almost 2,000 years later. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. What does that mean? Well, one of the things it means from both the Old Testament and the New Testament, that one of the things that it claims and proclaims is that God has chosen his king of the universe. And the name of that king is Jesus Christ. That's what that means. That goes all the way back to the theology of what the royal house was of David and what God's plans were for what was going to come from that royal house of David. Uh, several places we could look at. The most obvious one is Psalms 110. In fact, this is a psalm that was beloved by the first century church, and they quoted it in various forms and in various fragments uh, repeatedly. Psalms 110 says this, The Lord says to my Lord, the king, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. And it goes on, that psalm goes on to describe the success of the king and, and the conquest of all the enemies. And that now that God has chosen the king, the, the, the success of the king is assured. That's what that psalm is about. And of course, it was, it was you know, used, I'm sure, about the ordinary physical kings from the line of David. And it, and it was used to express the nation's hope that maybe this one will be righteous and maybe this one will actually be blessed by God and our nation will be blessed because of it. But as time went on, people came to realize there's this promise that is, God has yet to fulfill, that there will be the one king from the line of David that will one day come and establish a kingdom that will never pass away. And so by the time we get to the days of Jesus and the apostles, the Jewish folks had already been speculating, who is that one king? that one anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, who's that going to be? And the answer, as you know, that the New Testament gives that the early church of the, the early faith of the first Christians, they said, this is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came. Jesus Christ ministered. He performed as Peter summarizes it in the first sermon on the day of Pentecost, he performed signs and wonders in front of all of you. You know those things. He was killed by evil people, including, Peter points out, in the crowd, some of you. And God raised him from the dead. And Peter started his sermon to explain why is it that we have this outpouring of the Holy Spirit that you're seeing. We're speaking in tongues. You see the manifestations of God's Spirit in us. He says, the reason is, this is a sign. Jesus is at the right hand of God. Jesus is there, and the Holy Spirit has come here to be with us. Luke 22, Jesus himself makes this claim. In the worst period of his life, he's been arrested. All of his followers have scattered and run. He stands alone, surrounded by enemies, who are, we already know, willing to lie and bribe others to lie in order to bring a, a guilty verdict against Jesus. He stands alone in the presence of his accusers. And finally, they, they say, you must tell us who you are. Luke 22, verse 66. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, this Christ that we've been hoping for, if you are the Messiah, tell us. You must speak. And Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And I, if I asked you, you would not answer me. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of God.
and they all asked, Are you then the Son of God? And he replied, You have said it. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. They considered that to be a lie. They considered that, therefore, to be blasphemy. And blasphemy carries the sentence of death. They, they felt like their work was done. It was a trumped-up trial, uh, and it was a jumped-up charge. But they were determined to get to this verdict, and they decided those words of Jesus were false. And they hung him on a cross with the help of the Romans. And he died on that cross. And for three days, it looked like their verdict was just. But we all know what happened on the third day. God said that was an unjust verdict. And here's how you know. Go check the tomb. He's not there anymore. God raised Jesus from the dead, never to die again. He took Jesus into the resurrection life that he has planned for all of you. He took Jesus as the first fruits. And that was the testimony of God overturning the testimony of all the false witnesses and the verdict of the judges. And the Christians begin to say, Jesus ascended into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of God. Going all the way back to Psalms 110 and really going all the way back even further to Psalms like Psalms 2. To say Jesus is that chosen king of God. We now rule. We now are a part of his kingdom. And yes, the world is still in trouble and the world has many rebellious elements, but the one thing that's true is God has chosen his king over the entire universe. That's what it means when you say Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. God has chosen Jesus as his king of the entire cosmos, whatever there is. Jesus is it. We can go to passage after passage to talk about this. That's, that's essentially the faith of Colossians chapter 1. God has made him head over everything. There's no rulers, there's no authorities, there's no powers, nothing that is not now legally and righteously subject to Jesus Christ. Any power you know that acts opposed to the will of God is a rebel and a traitor to the true king because Jesus is the true king. Any thoughts in your own heart that are contrary to what God wants done on earth are rebels. They're rebellious things. They need to be pushed out of your life. And your struggle and my struggle, my lifelong struggle, is to fight against those rebellious parts of me to bring everything under submission to our Lord who is seated at the right hand of God, Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing now as Christians. That's what it means that God has place Jesus at his right hand. He is our king. He is the king of the entire universe. 
One of the great, great passages that uses this theology is the one that we had read uh, today, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 down through the end of the chapter. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Romans 8 summarizes a lot of what Paul has said previously in the book of Romans about just how horrible sin is. Sin is not individual acts that you do in Paul's mind. I mean, it is that, but that's way bigger than that. You do some bad things that are rebellious. That needs to stop. You need to push those out of your life, and you need to submit your heart to Jesus Christ. That's, that's, that's what the New Testament says over and over again. But sin is a bigger problem than just, I make bad choices sometimes. Sin is this global pollution that we just grow up in and we swim in and it's got its hooks into us. It's got chains around our ankles, whether we know they're there or not, whether we admit they're there or not. It has hooked us into a system of slavery to sin and we, we struggle and maybe we overcome this sin and it just yanks us down into this other sin next. It's just this overwhelming, overpowering system of sin. Paul has laid that theology out in the earlier pages of Romans and then in Romans 8 he says, but because of Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ has died, and because you live in Jesus Christ, the righteousness, the righteous requirements of the law can be fulfilled in you. You've been set free. You've been called to a higher plane. You can now walk by the Spirit instead of letting the flesh and the system of sin keep pulling you down into the mud. Today, right now, you can say, I will walk by God's Spirit. I will walk in the Spirit of my Lord Jesus Christ. I will make those choices and I will ask for that power so that I can be that person. Paul says, that's what's going on. And he goes on and he lists other blessings that come from the fact that Jesus has triumphed. Talks about how it changes our prayer. It talks about how it changes what we look forward to. And at the end of the chapter, he just burst into this, it's poetic really, this beautiful song almost of praise to just how mighty God is and how mighty Jesus Christ is and what that means for us. He says, what then shall we say in response to all these things? What he's just talked about, the blessings of Christ. If God is for us, who can be against us? Isn't that great? If God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, can anything that you can think of succeed in that contest? And the answer is, of course not. I understand that Satan spins webs and lies and makes it look like our position as Christians is impossible sometimes. But honestly... The reality is, if God is for us, nothing Satan has in his arsenal can succeed. And Paul warms to that theme, and he begins to think about it. If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, 
how will he not also, along with his son, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who stands to condemn? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And now he says, so I ask you, I'm putting in my own words here, who then shall separate us from the love of God? Satan, what do you have that you think is going to overwhelm the love of God expressed in his king, Jesus Christ? God loved us so much that he was willing to sacrifice his son, and now he has raised that same son that we proclaim when we take the Lord's Supper and many other times during our day and week. That same son he has raised to his right hand And Jesus is there right now interceding. So who's going to be able to bring a prosecution successfully against the people that God has done that for? That's what this text is asking. Could trouble separate us from God's love? Could hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the violence of the sword? Could those things pull us away from the God who has grasped us? All I've got to do is hang on to my Lord Jesus Christ. And none of those things can have an eternal effect on me. I can have an uncomfortable life because of some of those things, and I can suffer in this life because of those things. None of those things have the power to overwhelm me or break me. Because God has me. And Jesus Christ is talking to God about me. He's interceding for me. As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Yeah, Paul says there is persecution. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is our connection. Jesus is our inside man in heaven. And you, every time you proclaim his name, every time you you act in faith in him, you are appealing to the highest authority in the universe to come to your side. Christians, I'm not even to my third point yet, but here's what I want to say. Christians live the privilege that God has granted us. Live it. This this is an incredible treasure 
Don't set it aside and say, I'm going to spend that someday. Spend it today. Right now live, knowing that Jesus Christ has made you invulnerable to whatever Satan can throw at you as he is seated at the right hand of God. Last passage I want us to look at together this morning, there are many others, but the last one I want us to look at this morning is in Colossians. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians 1, Paul says, don't you understand what God has done? He's taken this same Jesus, the same Jesus that we talk about every week when we take the Lord's Supper, and the the same Jesus we mention in our prayers when we pray, and, and, and the same Jesus we read these stories about him, or we hear these stories about him. That same Jesus, God has made him the head of the universe. The head over everything. There's no power. There's no authority. That's Colossians 1 theology. There's, no, there's nothing in all of creation, just like Romans says, that stands against and above the power of Jesus Christ. He is our king, the king of the universe. And so Paul says this when he gets to chapter 3, since then you have been, you have been raised with Christ. He says that's what baptism means. Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And he goes on to describe, this means that you need to kill all the rebellious things that are in your heart. Every rebel thought, every rebel action, every rebel desire that you've got that runs contrary to the will of God is a traitor. It's committing treason against the true king. What do we do to traitors? Traitors deserve the death penalty. And Paul says, Kill all those things in your heart that run contrary to the will of God. Live this new life that's made possible for us because Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God. He is our king. Down in verse 11, he says, Here, in this with Christ, there is no Gentile or Jew. There's no circumcised or uncircumcised. There's no barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, (coughs) forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love. Here's how you spend the treasure that's lying right there within your grasp. The treasure of Christianity. Above all these virtues, put on love. That binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Since you are members of one body, you are called to peace. And be thankful. 
Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another in all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs and of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Here's how you spend the treasure that has been granted to you because of Jesus Christ and your willingness to put your faith in him. You live your life with the kind of love that he asked us to live. You live your life with the kind of forgiveness that he has already shown to you. Satan can't run you around by other people doing you wrong if you have the forgiving heart of God. And when we deal with each other, we deal with each other with patience. And we deal with each other with kindness. When I talk to you, I talk to you about Jesus Christ. And when we gather together and we sing these amazing songs, we are singing them because of God's Spirit in us. Do everything you do in the name of Jesus. You know, we have a custom and you're familiar with it. When we pray a prayer in this church, and usually probably you do too, when you pray your private prayers, we end with, in the name of Jesus, or some variation of that phrase. Now that's not a command in Scripture. We actually have examples of Christians praying, and they don't use that phrase necessarily. Sometimes they do. So it's not like a command. It's not like, oh, you don't have a Christian prayer because you didn't say in the name of Jesus. It's not one of those kind of deals. What it is is this. The reason your prayer matters so much to God is because it is through Jesus Christ. Your prayers, I don't care who you are, and I don't care what your self-image is right now. Your prayers and everything else you do matters so much to God. And you, you express that by saying, I do this or I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Paul says, don't just say your prayers that way. Live that way in the name of Jesus Christ. What I do with my life, what I do with my body, what I do with my mind, what I do with my eyes and my hands and my feet... All of those things I want to be able to say in each action of my day. This I do in the name of Jesus Christ. That's how we spend this incredible wealth of our man in heaven, Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of God. I do this in the name of Jesus Christ. And church, my prayer for you, my prayer for me, is that this next week and this next month and this next year, whatever the world throws at us, and we've learned it can throw weird stuff at us, whatever the world throws at us, we will respond in the name of Jesus Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for the incredible things you have accomplished through Jesus Christ. We are grateful that he is there with you at your right hand, interceding for us. We are grateful that he is there as your king of the universe. And God, we 
want to ask for your blessing and your strength so that your spirit will give us the power to live our days in the name of your King, Jesus Christ. God, we pray in his great name. Amen. If you need to respond to the invitation, if you need prayers or help, or if today is the day that you, like these Colossian Christians, want to be baptized and wash away everything of your old life and begin this new life, if you want to take that step today, we invite you to come forward. Tell us what we can do for you as we stand and are led in song.